0: Forever. Dog.
1: Welcome to Public Intellectual Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners So if you would like to become a supporter You can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual And you're a savvy individual I don't need to explain to you how Patreon works But we do appreciate the support So again, it's patreon.com slash public intellectual In our continuing investigation into the reality of the lives of straight white men, we turn our attention to their artistic output. There are a lot of controversies raging these days about representation, identity, and privilege, and art is increasingly talked about in the language of numbers, as in how many characters of color appear in this book, how many women are quoted in the research materials of this book, Sometimes these things dominate the response to a book or a film, rather than having the audience or the critic engage with the work as a whole. So I wanted to talk to my friend Philip St. John about this, an Irish playwright who has been writing for the theatre for decades. He is, as you might have guessed, straight, white, and male, and we discuss some of the contemporary pressures on artists and writers and the displeasure of the audience and critics, When your work does not conform to these expectations. So I was following this controversy over social media where a woman had been cast to play a superhero on a television show. And the character is supposed to be a Jewish lesbian, and the woman who was playing the role was a non-Jewish lesbian. And the argument that sort of took over social media was that the A non-Jewish woman, I guess, can't portray a Jewish woman, even though it's also like a superhero. So uh, anyway, so this odd thing has happened where we are only supposed to portray ourselves now, that our identity is so non-fluid that even if we're acting, um, we can only bring what we have to the table. And as a playwright, I just wanted to start out our conversation and sort of get your perspective on these types of controversies
0: a lot of great roles have been played by people of the opposite gender or other gender um, there's a, a version of hamlet in, in on in dublin at the moment i haven't actually seen it but it's supposed to be fantastic it's, it's it's a black female irish hamlet and supposed to be you know a really interesting new take on it so i think you're kind of losing a, a, that that range when you start prescribing where things are are going away um, I suppose there's also the danger in writing I think uh, we were talking about this last night that because you know of concern <coughs> over representing who you are rather than who other people are, you know that it's all kind of shrinking into autobiography and that's just throwing away so much, Uh, of our ability to understand the world and, uh, you know, empathize with other people. I mean, that's part, I think, of the role of art, if there is a role for art, is to um, get beyond ourselves and see another perspective. I mean, recently, obviously, in the States, you know, you've you've had Trump seeming to emerge out of some swamp, you know, that liberals found it very hard to see where this guy came from because... People were no longer looking at there trying to understand the other. Now that's the unfashionable other. You know, maybe the kind of alt-right other or whatever other like that. I think you've got to try and understand these people through art. When I say you've got to understand I don't think that's, there is a function to art. But, you know, it would be one of the byproducts that you are trying to understand these people. What, you know, motivates them? And not just the alt-right, but people who have voted for Trump who are often surprisingly kind of ordinary looking people. You know, shockingly ordinary. Yeah. And as you were saying last night, often women. Yeah. Yeah. So.
1: Um, and it seems like the, then there's this trap that we fall into because if you write a character who is not of your um, race or class or gender, you come under criticism for misrepresentation. But then yeah. if you don't have women, or if you, if, as a man, if you're writing a yeah. play that doesn't have women in it, yeah. um, so then then you're criticized for that. And so it just becomes this idea that maybe we just want straight white men to just go away entirely, yeah. <laughs> um, well, which I know that-
0: They've been around a long time, make a lot of noise. It's understandable. Sorry.
1: I, and, I, and I say this by understanding that, you know, um, they're, they're still winning a lot of awards and they have a lot of money and power in publishing. And yeah. I understand all of that. Um, But it does seem like the thought process isn't going far enough for us to understand. When we make these complaints about um, representation and and identity and and so on, they're not thought through what the ramifications of that are, which is just like that that means that straight white men can only write about straight white men, but they can't write about straight white men because that's also um, bad, because they're bad.
0: Well, also because, I mean... You know, there, there is this kind of faith in autobiography that I don't have. Yeah. You know, people can't, uh, I think people find it very difficult to write truly about themselves. You know, even people who seem to be exoriating themselves and, you know, revealing all these terrible things about themselves. There's often another agenda at work. I know that sounds cynical. I mean, they may not even be aware of the agenda themselves. But generally, it is some way of showing themselves in a certain light, um, even if it's only to. To get attention, so you can't trust autobiography either. So it's not like you're, you're reducing everything to the ultimate hardcore tr- truth, you're not. I mean, there are various kinds of truths, and we're losing that sense of, I think, a more important truth, which is the lie the lie of fiction. You know, we're losing trust in that, and it's not like that's you know a recent invention of straight white males or whatever, it's something that's been around for a long time, and a lot of cultures have used it to explore the world. I mean, I think Ireland is probably a very good example of uh, you know, taking on, say, the representation themselves without um, reducing it to autobiography. I'm talking about Irish literature at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, we were the laughingstock of the London stage, uh, you know, British novels, regularly lampooned Irish people um, and the great Irish writers of, of of around that time took that on and reversed some of the stereotypes, but they also took on Britain and they took on the imperial project and they took them on, on their own ground. They took it on, you know, in their own genres: the novel, the play, um, the poetry, and I think they wrestled the ground for themselves. But they didn't do it by you know, um, casting themselves as, uh, you know, uh, entirely uh, downtrodden, which they were at the time. I mean, if you look at it, Irish history is basically just a thousand years of a boot stamping, you know. And it wasn't very long after the famine that this happened. You know, a million people died in the famine. Loads of people emigrated. It changed Ireland forever. Ireland, up to the time of the famine, had. A large Gaelic speaking population after the famine, because it became really important that you speak English because you may need to go abroad. That culture was wiped out. So, you know, we had a kind of a a cultural uh, apocalypse then. But, you know, the response to it was to these forms are there. Let's use them to get across our own point of view, but not in a kind of this reductive to. Oh, poros kind of way. And I mean, it was very critical. I mean, if you look at Irish writing from around that time, it's actually really, really critical of Irish society. It's very tough minded, often very cool, um, you know, and it doesn't, because it doesn't have the sort of cartoony quality that some of the British writing of Ireland, about Ireland in, in the 19th century had, it's still really lively and uncomfortable to watch, like a playboy, the Western world, when you see a, even just a very straight, unadventurous version of it. Mm-hmm it's really, as, a, as an Irish person, it's very discomforting to look at, because you think that's so true about Irish people, still. You know, so.
1: Yeah, and I, and I and this is something that I've talked about in several podcasts, so that probably everybody is sick of me talking about it, but the, the place that women's literature is in, or um, even the idea of there being a women's literature, um, I I understand the animosity and the frustration of having been represented by our terrible husbands for the last you know couple hundred years and yeah. this very sort of self-serving thing about what a woman is and how she behaves and and so on, um, but there seems to be this within sort of women's literature and I can't even think of. Um, very few. I can think of very few exceptions to this rule. Like Catherine Davis in America is maybe the only sort of um, straight white woman uh, who kind of takes on women's culture in, in a sort of hard-minded way. But then it just becomes this project of like pro- trying to prove something or trying to portray women in a specific light of no, we're we're so much better than that and. We're we're actually the more empathetic, better, clever, et cetera, person. Um, so much of, of of novels about women is um, and and by these sort of younger women writers is like that, and I think it's just a waste a waste of everybody's time.
0: Yeah, it's kind of role model writing, isn't it? You know that that it's almost like you. you, you I actually held a workshop last year in playwriting, and um, there were two plays in it where. One was written by a woman and one was written by a man. And both of them had passive women in them. They're both very good plays, but they just had little parts where the women were passive. Uh, nobody commented on the passivity of the woman in the play written by the woman. But the guy, they really went for it, it was amazing. Like uh, it was real. There was real anger. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was genuine anger. Um, you know, they they, they, they were annoyed at what, it, what this man was doing, but nobody seemed to notice that the woman had written this basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a, a thing they used to do in Downbeat magazine, which is a jazz magazine, where they had a thing called a blindfold test, which is basically you were played a bit of music and you didn't know who had made it. Mm-hmm. And you have to judge it on its merits. I mean, there's so much known about artists now before you actually see their work. Yeah. You know, particularly online and stuff like that. I do it myself. I mean, you just can't help it. In the, in the past, it was really difficult to find that stuff. You, know, you might find a book in the school. You know, I, I first started reading <coughs> serious literature in the seventies. I mean, to find out anything about anybody, you know, that wasn't Irish, who wasn't Irish, was like a, a real joy. And you, like you just get these little nuggets about them, maybe in the newspaper, there might be a glancing reference to them or whatever, and you really kind of made a whole kind of corner of the universe out of that. But now it's like. You know, their reputation is the important thing, and the art is kind of a byproduct. I mean, there are a lot of people I think in art now whose art is really the publicity tour. Yeah, yeah, it's like bands. You know, they you know the album is no longer so important; it's the tour. Well, it's unfortunately it's the same in culture, and a lot of them are really entertaining. And you know, you could argue that it is actually artful what they're doing, but unfortunately, then you have to go and read the book <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> Which, well. You may buy the book because you might feel, gee, I've been here and i met the person. I want to shake their hand or whatever and buy the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was reading there's this, there's this new book that's being sort of um uh, you know, the hot new thing, debut writer, uh prestigious MFA program, et cetera, et cetera. Like all just being set up for that place. Um and um I was googling about the book and all i could find was like her personal essays that she wrote you know it's like about a cult and so then there were essays tendent tangential to the thing um about her re- her experience in, in religion and her you know so yeah. it, it wasn't you can't just like leave the the book as a as an idea you have to yeah. have some sort of personal connection you have to Draw the line between author and art, mm. um, and I find that I find that increasingly weird that it has to be um, if there's not a personal connection if if it's not sort of in some ways autobiographical, um, then we almost just don't trust it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's so prevalent, isn't it, across so many genres? Like, I mean, you've got rea- reality TV. Obviously, you've got a reality TV star if you want to call them that, running the free world, basically the most powerful man in the world. You know, it's got to that stage. Um, you know, there's the nonfiction novel, which is hugely influential now because people don't seem to trust or be prepared to kind of make the effort to enter a world that's made up. You know, there's some friends of mine write the nonfiction novels and they're really good writers. But I often think, you know, if I were to come in today to you and say, Just an amazing thing happened to me on the way here. And you say, Oh, yeah, what? Well, before I go on, I I made this up. I mean, I really have to make a huge amount of effort to to keep your interest. So that's the wonder of something like that. It's, you know, when you get into that world and it's it's resonant, it seems somehow true, uh, even if you might not be able to define how it's true or what it's telling you but it's like we're we're afraid of anything that we can't pin down in political terms like you were saying about you know particular from particular background ethnicity or whatever if we can't pin these things down uh, there's just this terrible fear but you know what art to me anyway is opening up things and exploring and putting yourself maybe in a in a in a situation where you don't feel entirely comfortable or orientated or you're not really sure what's right or wrong, what's up or down. You've you've lost your sense of perspective, your normal sense of perspective, because it's a healthy thing. You know, it's refreshing to see the world that way. I think.
1: So is that why you write about ghosts now? Because you're not going to get any angry emails from ghosts about the misrepresentation (laughs) of their reality?
0: (laughs) I don't, I really don't know what that's about. Well, my brother died a couple of years ago. The first play I wrote about ghosts was called Temptress. And I wrote it really quickly when I was on my own in the house. Laura, my wife, was away for a couple of weeks. And this thing just jumped out of me and I just followed it. And really, I I had very little control over it. Um, And shortly after that, my brother discovered he was sick. And I think I, I sensed that. He died of cancer about six months afterwards. And he was a kind of disturbed guy. So you know, he had that kind of ghostly quality. He, he kind of lived in some ways a sort of half life. He was sort of living in sheltered accommodation for a long time. So I think that's possibly there. In a, from If you really want to know the autobiographical yeah, stuff, yeah, here yeah. I am yeah. going to yeah, contradict myself. <laughs> I just made all that up. That's not, I never had a brother. I have 10 sisters. <laughs> but um, I think with ghosts, um, yeah, we were talking about this. What, what is this? I mean, I think, you know, it's strange. Uh, again, to go back like to the 70s when I was first reading serious literature, the Gothic was very unfashionable. I mean it was just seen as trash yeah like science fiction was. You were all these marginalized uh, types of uh, stories. and I have to say that's the way I regarded them as well at the time. but it, like it has kind of slowly crept right into the heart of the culture. you know, horror is just there. it's uh, or fantasy. Has become hugely important. I, I I don't know quite why. I think it could be a reaction against this autobiographical thing. That you know this is this is actually our escape from that, mm. uh, and also a sense maybe that the world is completely out of control. You know the weirdest things are happening, and this is a way of looking at it. But personally, my one I think it's like I'm sixty, so uh, I suppose you really do start thinking about mortality. So that's one of the reasons why, but again, like with that play with Temptress, I mean, people came up to me afterwards, and they were trying to pin it down. Like, but you know, their their theories about it were like on the same night. I had two people coming up to me and saying, "I know what this is about. It's about the housing crisis." So okay, and you could see it that it is partly yeah. about the housing crisis in Ireland, which is chronic. And then somebody else get, came up to me and said, "I know this is definitely about pornography. Now you know how you know, that's a big jump between the two. Yeah, and they're both valid ways of looking at it, but both of them kind of shut off the whole the rest of the of the play, which I think you know is really what art is about. It's a, it's one thing hitting you, and
1: I like the I, I kind of I don't know the idea that somebody is watching something and being. Like I have to figure this out. Like what? It, what is it about? Like I have to figure out the the one idea behind it, rather yeah. than letting it be sort of complex. Is that's that's that seems bad. That seems strange, <laughs> isn't it?
0: Yeah. yeah. It's like, but you know, I know a lot of people like that. Will will give you a formula that this is, uh, and they don't feel happy. I mean, often these are artists too. It's a strange thing, you know, with their own work they can be very adventurous, but when they go to see other things this is about such and such and that's the way they talk about it they see it in that frame whereas i'm kind of more and i'm not talking about obscure work i don't particularly want to be bewildered by something but i want to be you know when you look at a painting or listen to a piece of music you can't read really, it it's very difficult to reduce it to a sentence you know what what it's doing to you it's an experience and you're kind of to some extent uh, diffusing its power by explain it I mean if you could explain it why do the damn thing in the first place
1: yeah Yeah, maybe that's sort of part of this opinion culture that we live in where we're constantly like on social media giving our opinion of things and so we want to be able to distill it into a tweet or a Facebook post or something like you know one of the reasons why I do the so many of these podcast episodes about film is because I think that writing a criticism about film has become so much worse and so much more degraded and, and less complicated. And we, you know, especially, I think a lot of it is about, um, and you know, this. I'm not going to name names. I just, I just decided I'm not going to name names. But um, this idea of judging a, a piece of art based on how does it, uh, how does it represent the woman character? How does it um, represent the black character? Or whatever. Mm. Like that's such a huge part of criticism now um that you can avoid talking about the content of the movie yeah. at all that you can just sort of be like well there were only three women and they never you know the yeah. be- they didn't pass the bechdel test which is such utter horseshit but um yeah so I, I think that really sort of simplifies um and keeps somebody from actually engaging with um with what they're experiencing whether it's theater or film or books
0: So it's like a defense mechanism in some ways from the power of art. I think you could be right. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, recently what I've been doing plays, um, you know, uh, I've noticed increasingly actors being concerned about lines that they're speaking as if the lines are going to represent them and as if the opinions of the characters, which were not obnoxious, I don't think, could be taken up by certain... Sections of the audience as being offensive, and I said, "Well, look, they know it's not you that's being. If anybody's going to get hit over the head, I am, not you. Mm-hmm. You know, the job is to try and get this across as convincingly as possible. So it's like it's strange because you'd imagine as an actor, you'd uh, you know, you'd enjoy the." the freedom of being able to say maybe something that you wouldn't ordinarily say or try and understand why somebody would say something like that. These weren't really obnoxious things either. This is a surprising thing. So what I've noticed in theater, you know, theater is a, you know, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderfully immediate way of encountering uh, the culture. but. increasingly uh, because it's a, a collective enterprise you know there always has to be compromises and you know general agreements it's not like you go off and write a short story or a play <clears throat> so um, increasingly the the political the you know the identity politics is as playing a bigger and bigger part in it and you can just see it on the stage you know things are being neutered uh, because of that you know um and you don't get that same what I love in theater is a sense of danger that this stuff on the stage could spill over into the audience. I don't even particularly hit or have a bottle thrown in here or whatever, but you know that you really feel you're on the stage, you feel you're on the stage more than anything. And you're involved in this thing and you forget everything else. And it's just wonderful that you know, words and these really skillful actors and lights and sound or whatever. Can conjure up something like that so simply in an age when we're just inundated with other stuff, but there's a danger of that going. I think, and it'd be a shame. The other problem I think with with theatre is that you know theatre is incredibly nervous about audiences, understandably, because it's expensive to put on theatre. You have a short window to get your work on, maybe two or three weeks, get attention, sell as many seats as you can, and hope you don't lose money on it. And uh, so what's what's happening increasingly, I think, is People are going either for adaptations of movies, uh, books, uh, old classics, or they're writing something that is sort of yesterday's headline. That's still in the news. People will be interested in that. Let's get them in for that. Rather than you know give people an experience, like like um, seeing the Irish playwright said you know the play, I'm not a gourmand myself, but he said play should be like a you know a really good meal. It should have that, all the variety, the textures and tastes and things like that. So it's that kind of experience that I think theatre is just great for. And whether that's instrumental in changing the world or not, it doesn't really matter. To me, it doesn't really matter. I think it will in some some strange way. It will change things and change things for the better if it's good art. But that's not really what it's about. It's kind of a profound experience of the way things are gosh did i say that
1: (laughs) and we're not even drinking yeah um yeah what you were saying about sort of the actor being concerned about being associated with what they say like um I i was thinking of somebody like jessica chastain who only will ever be in a movie with like a strong woman character really? like and will never sort of like okay. never portray his yeah. weakness or fragility yeah. or passivity or anything yeah. versus somebody like Nicole Kidman who just really goes to dark places all the time. Yeah. Um and I really admire her. But yeah, I mean it's still I think this um, you know, within women's culture, this thing of of overcorrecting the yeah. the the record of um no, we're actually great.
0: Yeah. Well it's understandable after so long that, you know, and there will be an overcorrection and that's gonna happen. But I suppose at a certain point you've got to look around and say there are as many, at least as many passive women as there are passive men, and passive is not terribly interesting as we said as a character in, in anything. And I think that's more the problem. You know, it doesn't work as a character. You know, particularly if they're, you know, if they're foregrounded and they're doing nothing and there's no dynamism in in, in what's happening. That could be the problem more than the the fact that you know. A certain reality is being represented, but I think, as you're saying, yeah, it's it's very difficult, particularly for men. To um, we were talking about this, you, um, it's very difficult for, for a white straight white man to represent a woman who's anything less than assertive and you know brilliant, yeah, you know, and, and just fantastic at what they do. Um, it's. I mean, you could you can make them difficult, I suppose, but they have to be very successful then as well. You know, there have to be all these compensating kind of things, and really, you know, what's happening there is the kind of the culture is writing the play rather than the artist. You know, we kind of sort of lost faith in that individual vision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this collective thing, uh, which is working in a very subtle way to control things, and. Uh, like we were talking last hour, uh, at a function last night about how Ireland has changed a lot over the last uh, 25 years. I mean, it's unrecognizable and it's, the changes are practically all, well, I would say all for the better. But, you know, it, it, I think it, it, there, there's this idea that around it. So I think there's a truth in it, you know, that after the famine, we gave up the language. And when, uh, a, when a country gives up its language, uh, is prepared to do anything, you know. They did. It, they did it for survival. Mm-hmm. um So we've done that. Then we, we the church took the place of all of that. We got rid of the British, and the British took the place of the church. We got rid of the church, and now we brought in a, a, a particular kind of politics, which largely I agree with. I mean, you know. I'm really glad I live in contemporary Ireland and not Ireland of 25 years ago. But there is a kind of a wholesale buying into things and, and a lack of interrogation of things in Ireland. You know, I think this is, it just seems to be part of the the culture, which is strange because you think of Ireland as being kind of rebellious and individualistic. And we are in a lot of ways, we're kind of anarchic. Mm-hmm. But there is this overall kind of um, acceptance. I'm, I'm almost tempted to say passivity in the face of these things.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, I mean, you know, the passive character, I mean, especially passivity in women, I I do think of as being interesting and worth exploring and understanding in art, because it's not. But it's like, you know, so Melania Trump gave this interview last night. um, And she's somebody that sort of in sort of the, you know, the commenting culture. Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. They're always like trying to find excuses for her. They're always trying to like, you know, trying to explain her in this way of like, she's the, she's, with this clothing choice, she's showing her displeasure with Donald Trump and pro- silently protesting his thing. It's like, you know, she's kind of, she seems just like an asshole, like on the same <laughs> level that he does. Um, but her sort of passivity, because we don't, I think we just don't understand it in, in, in people and, and in women. Um, yeah, like I, I think that's I think it is worth exploring in art, and it's um, not in women's culture that I because everyone now needs to be very strong.
0: Yeah, and you don't think there's anybody doing it? Any any women doing it?
1: I think Katherine Davis does it, and this is in America. This is literally the only writer who's living that I can think of right now. I mean, you know, if you look at some, if you look at um, going back to Henry James or mm. um, W. Somerset Maugham or um, Nathaniel Hawthorne even. Um, so they were exploring these things, but um, as far as like, contemporary writers, there's really not that many.
0: So it's, like it's more kind of gay men from the past that were sort of doing this better, do you think?
1: Yeah, because I think you need somebody, an outsider to see it so that you don't have that investment of how you're being portrayed. Mm. Like, you know, like what we were saying about autobiography, even if you're Mm. sort of out there talking about what an asshole you've been, um, you know, all these sort of addict memoirs and so on, you're still performing a version of yourself for attention or acceptance yeah. or forgiveness or whatever. You still have an investment in how people are seeing you, and that's going to change how you write about it. So maybe you just need an outsider, um, which is why I'm disappointed that we don't have women writers writing about men. Um, we don't have Do you, know? Um, as, you know lesbian writers uh, writing about um, men in the way that um, you know, Henry James wrote about women. Because to have a sort of lack of investment and ability to see um, would maybe show us something that we haven't thought about before.
0: Yeah, that would be a very interesting perspective, you know. Uh, And that's exactly what I think, that's what I think art does so well. You know, that it is the other, that's the interesting thing. Um, And if if you continue to just look at yourself and your own... Dilemma—you just atomize everything, and there is none in this collective sense. Really, there's a kind of a you know a, a broad, rigid, unor- inorganic acceptance of a particular type of politics, but you know you don't get that flexible, probing kind of uh, tentative, uh, complex at feeling out of what is going on, and we're losing that. Uh, very definitely, um, you know, it's it, it's it's gone from the centre of the culture. Uh, I mean, if you look at even back to the '90s, I mean, there were so many writers at the time who were at the centre of the culture who uh, were selling well. I'm talking about in Ireland and Britain, anyway. I don't know what it was like in the States. It, it, like it was a kind of golden age for um, literary fiction because uh, you had admittedly mainly white men, mm-hmm. um, were. Uh, using the the novel in a and uh, well actually quite a few of them were were from the ex colonies of Britain as well you know uh, Yuka, Kazuo Ishiguro as well from Japan but they were operating at the centre of the culture they were exploring things uh, it was daring but it was also popular you know people were reading them and again without knowing very much about who these people were. Um, Ian McCune was another one early on early Ian McCune is really disturbing you know
1: yeah and I don't know what's going on with him now though we need to take take away his computer
0: (laughs) yeah I love the early stuff though well I certainly did I haven't read in a long time but I mean it it was just like really scary kind of stuff and um, you know you felt you were being taken somewhere that existed that exists still has a resonance uh, you weren't being given, uh, you know, your your guidebook, uh, and you had to find your way through it. You were treated like an adult, but people were reading it. So something strange has happened that we're into this thing where, you know, it's almost like uh, every book comes with a cultural toolkit about how to read it, uh, you know, and, and what it's about, and uh, you know, if you have trouble <laughs> understanding it, or you know, if it's, you know, it's almost like a helpline. There isn't literally, but it's it's almost like that kind of thing, you know that, you know, art has been, um, well, neutralized. Mm-hmm.
1: I thought of two more write, women writers that good uh, mm-hmm. and they're Irish, uh, oh. Deirdre Madden. Deirdre is fantastic. She's wonderful um, and almost unpublished and unknown in the states. I think only really? a couple of her books have actually She's been so published. Qu- in her writing is so quiet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so thoughtful and yeah. the images like, get stuck on my head forever Like I, re- I remember this scene about her watching um, a man with a hair rabbit um, in his lap on the bus and I just think about that all the time yeah. it's weird yeah, yeah. anyway um, and uh, Edna O'Brien
0: Edna O'Brien yes yeah. absolutely yeah well I think actually in Ireland there are uh, yeah, women's writing in Ireland is fantastic I think it's the it's where it's happening at the moment. at I've lost a lot of friends saying that. But I mean, there are <laughs> a lot of really good male writers too, but there's really exciting female writers in Ireland um, because there is this territory to explore. I think, you know, in fiction, fiction is less, um, you know, they're less conscious of um, maybe the, the, uh, you know, towing a particular line it can be quite disturbing. Uh, Edna O'Brien's an amazing writer. Um, yeah, Deirdre, what I love about Deirdre's writing is um, it's, it's so preci- it's so precise yet it's indefinable at the same time what she's at, you know what I mean? You, you, you can really put your finger on it a lot of the time. What is going on? What is going on? Why is somebody behaving like that? And it's like riveting. It's realism. It's riveting, but it's really strange too, you know, and very funny. I mean, it's very funny in a, in a quiet kind of way.
1: So has the changing of the culture and what audiences are sort of looking for and responding to changed your writing? I mean, Mm. are there plays that you've done in the past that you would not, you would absolutely not do now?
0: Um, No, I don't think so, no. I. I, Well, actually, the last play I wrote was called um, The Restoration of Hope. And I did feel this kind of obligation... I don't know why it happened. Uh, I did definitely kind of yield ground on it. I found it a very difficult play to write. I really didn't have a grip on the core of it. But I found myself sort of uh, taking a series of decisions that were not, you know, to do with the the work itself. They were, they were kind of um, maybe stepping back um, when I should have been kind of confronting things. And it was kind of, you know, a retreat. So... Oh, that was on last year, so I've kind of said that's never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't really explain why it happened. I think I, it was a kind of panic or something as I was writing, because it was a difficult play to write. Um, well, I no, I don't think so. I've 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 um, a novel I've been working on uh, set in Jamaica in the eighties, because I taught in Jamaica for a while, <laughs> and it's gone through a number of drafts. Uh, And it does kind of confront a lot of these things It's told from the point of view of a white guy who's sharing a flat with another white guy. And uh, the white guy from whose perspective you see it is having, um, you couldn't call it an affair, but it's a relationship, a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old Jamaican prostitute. So, uh, you know, it's kind of explosive material and it's actually based on something that happened. I was the other guy in the flat Oh, autobiography. Jess, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> it was you, <true. laughs>
0: but at least it's not told from my point of view. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the problem with this book. Actually, is that there is a certain amount of truth in it, and trying to kind of get away from all the truth. But yeah, it was like a um, yeah, it's explosive because you know I use I suppose I'm using patois in it. Um, I've tried to be kind of even handed with, with all of the characters in it, not showing. Local Jamaican people in a, you know in, a, in an especially better light than the, than the whites. So try to be even handed about it. I mean, I think that's your job, you know, not to patronize mm-hmm. the people. So I I intend to finish it and publish it. I also wrote a play set in Jamaica. It won an award, but funnily enough, uh, before it won the award, I put it through a workshop here, and a guy I really respect. Uh, told me that he felt it was uh, stereotyping uh, at at one of the black characters in it. And he said, you know, for that reason, I couldn't get behind it. But it won this award. It was an international award. uh, Two of the people on Pal panel were, uh, you know, from the developing world. It eventually got performed in the developing world. So that, again, is this kind of maybe terrible sensitivity here at the moment uh, about these questions, you know, and not wanting to err, not wanting to put the foot in the wrong, you know, mm-hmm. put a foot wrong on it. Whereas people who actually, maybe who were to an extent, to an extent it was addressing, I suppose, uh, had no problem with it. Yeah. No, I don't think, you know, I, definitely after that last play, Restoration of Hope, I decided I must ni- never do that again because I'm wasting my time. Mm-hmm. I'm wasting everybody else's time. The play was just tedious because of this i
1: yeah i think i think there is a performing of sensitivity in the way of like i'm i'm a white person and i'm offended by the way that you uh portray a jamaican person yeah. that i've have yeah. no i've never met <laughs> anybody from jamaica yeah. or yeah. you know but i i'm offended uh on their behalf because yeah. i want to be sure to uh, inoculate myself. from criticism. I, I
0: don't know if this if this particular instance. Just to be clear, but I don't think it was that. I think it, like it was gen- this this you know this, this 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 was his genuine reaction to it. I mean the character. Just to be clear about the character, was a stereotypical type of young black male. You know he was aggressive. He was sexually predatory. He was taking a lot of drugs, but all this was the front. He was actually a middle class guy who'd been educated in Ireland, and when he talked in his own voice, you saw he was actually quite a sensitive guy who was putting all this front up. He was kind of Im- like imitation rap type guy, you know. So there was a complexity in it that that was being denied, that was maybe uncomfortable, yeah. you know, that these these personas can exist in people, you know. Um, I mean that was I would say of the you know the experiences of my life that was the most uh, you know vital being in Jamaica for two years It was just incredible I went there in 1980 I was an incredibly shy uh, introverted uh, guy just being through college and hardly spoken to anybody all my time in college I was so terrified basically because I was surrounded by women you know I'd gone to an all-boys school and I was very shy Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought for some reason I go off to a kind of tropical island and everything would be all right. I'd leave all this behind <laughs> me and I forget all this terrible past. It was incredibly naive. And I went out there and I said, like, Jesus, I'm the same person, but I'm here. And you know, you had to sink or swim because it was a very different culture and it was, you know, it was a, a quite a violent time in Jamaica, which is a very troubled place at the time and still is to an extent, but it was a wonderful place too, incredible experience. and part of me still sees the world from that perspective. You know, when we talk about problems in Ireland, we have had problems over the last 10 years with the downturn and all this money we owed. You know, you think really, you know, the problems that we have here and the housing crisis, we have a housing crisis here. But, you know, when you look at what people daily are doing in in the developing world, I mean, it's just, it's an entirely different order of things. So, yeah, it was it was fantastic. But, you know, I do, res, I do try and be, as tough when I'm writing about them as I would be on the white person because I think that's your job
1: yeah 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 and I I think that there's not a sense that you have any sort of obligation or responsibility when you're I mean especially once you're um, you're taking on the task of only sort of representing yourself um, or your one particular identity there's it, it sort of drains you of the responsibility of taking it really seriously does that make sense like
0: um i I don't quite follow
1: i don't know like a a sort of um lack of toughness or hard-mindedness in when all you're doing is autobiography or yeah yeah, identity politics it's just like well i just need to tell the story of who i am because that's yeah
0: yeah well there's also this thing that you know automatically you've you're you're you know 7 out of 10 down the road towards believability because you're telling the story you're the you're the story mm-hmm. the 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 fiction is an appendage or the story that well, possibly it is fiction i don't know <laughs> but the, the the writing is an appendage of you um so you're uh you don't really have to try as hard and um people are going to accept what you have to say to an extent unless they can see inconsistencies in it I mean I have to say autobiographies don't usually interest me memoirs don't interest me unless they're tricky Mm -hmm. unless they're really kind of these ones that make you wonder uh, like for instance Bob Dylan's I don't know if you read Bob Dylan's one Chronicles (laughs) Uh, he's playing all kinds of games in it like he's taking bits of Proust and he's putting Proust in passages from Proust into scenes describing you know New Orleans and stuff like that and Bits of Ovid and, and things. And uh, he kind of plays with, uh, you know, the myth of Bob Dylan. that He really tells you very little about himself in a very spellbinding way. It's a very tricky book, but it's enjoyable for that reason because you're kind of peering into it thinking, well, is this true or not true? You know, whereas like when you get this, oh, God help me, you know, this is what happened to me and, and all that. You know, while it can be moving on a human level, you know, when you meet somebody and they've they're gone through a terrible time, it can be terrible. But it doesn't have the, I suppose, the, the you know, art has to me, anyway, to have um, some, needs to be removed uh, from that uh, kind of, Two people talking across the table, kind of thing. Well, I did say you need to be on the stage with the actors experiencing that. That's because that world is so complete in itself. You know that you believe it; it's there, and that goes when it's when it's, you know, appended to the uh, the autobiographer.
1: And autobiography becomes weirdly like criticism-proof because it's. He, he, it's like no, it, yeah. this really happened to me. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what do you do then? I mean, you yeah. can you've got the facts to prove it, but you know you can arrange facts, can't you, uh, in any particular way? Um, yeah, I, I, it's hard to see where we're going to go with 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 this. You know, where do you go next? I mean, you were talking yeah. about what was it, illness? Uh,
1: the illness memoir. Yeah. yeah.
0: I haven't read any of those. I mean,
1: they're so big right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: And who are you, who's reading them? Every, Do you think?
1: everybody everybody yeah everybody's sick i mean you know like the whole sort of um uh maybe this is just sort of an american phenomenon but um the whole wellness uh culture that's that's really taken over in america with the whole like um you know goop um the Gwyneth Paltrow uh health empire and oprah did a lot of that and they're just um there's so many of them um of talking about wellness and health and healing and recovery and all these sort of very vague terms. Um, and it's all just sort of con men, you know, it's, it really is like, it's all just sort of untested, um, uh powders and supplements and jade eggs that you put in your vagina and no. uh yeah yeah you jade to, eggs yeah they actually had to pay like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a lawsuit because they had told women to put jade eggs in their vaginas and um they sold jade eggs on the website for like sixty dollars specifically to put up your vagina and uh jade uh has natural cracks in it which collects bacteria and then it infects you Um, and there's no way so they gave a lot of women (laughs) vaginal infections and so they had to pay $150,000. Gosh. Um, uh,
0: I mean, I'm I'm behind you here. Why would you put Jade... In your vagina, what is the
1: point? To tighten your, oh, uh, okay. your pelvic floor.
0: Okay, thank you for doing that.
1: You're me. welcome. Okay. I'm okay. glad that I could enlighten <laughs> you with this. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's really, everybody's on a supplement. Everybody's on an herb. Everybody's on like an egg of some sort. Um, in America, and it, it's very much about sort of optimizing your health, mostly to make you a better worker, mostly so that, you know, like the Silicon Valley stuff, uh, the nootropics, which is like, brain supplements um, right. and so on. It's all about sort of making you into a, a better worker or whatever, but, um, but yeah, it, so now it's um, illness memoirs of chronic illness and Lyme disease and um, chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, all these sort of very um, diffuse, some of them being real, some of them not being real, but then, you know, um, it, I guess, and in the same way, like people who have uh, some of these autoimmune disorders um, have been accused of faking for a long time. And then finally, he, some of them have been only recently medically legitimized um, after decades. And, mm. you know, hundreds of thousands of people suffering from them right now the cdc is like oh it's not just women being hysterical there's an actual problem yeah so the illness memoir i think plays into that in the same way of women's literature of um these are my experiences they're legitimate my version of events is enough i don't have to question them um and so you get these sort of like um performative memoirs of illness
0: and are these the same people who are taking the supplements
1: yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, they're strange, though. And, they're, it? and it's all these accounts of like um, sort of moving through these new age uh, because the medical industry doesn't take them um, seriously. So they yeah. have to go to these places about um, mold toxicity and heavy metal toxicity and uh, pesticides in produce and, you know, all these other things. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, it's it's um, a lot of it is really bonkers and taken at sort of face value.
0: I mean, what do people get out of reading those? I mean, they must be incredibly distressing to read. You know, Um, I mean, is it there, but for the grace of God?
1: Maybe, or maybe you know, because um, you know a lot a lot of people, and you get criticized if you say this. A lot of people did fake illness um, and have throughout time. Like a lot of those hysterical women um, were just, you know, trapped in terrible marriages and wanted to take to their bed for 10 years so they didn't have to talk to anybody. And I think that's a legitimate decision to make. Mm. Um, but, uh, but, you know, a lot yeah. of people do fake illness in order to get attention and concern and care. Um, and uh, so they, they would sort of latch on to these. Undiagnosable conditions, and you know, this. Well, is this a it?
0: sign of a sick culture? You know, that we're, we're that obsessed with with illnesses, and yeah, you know that oh, that yeah, that, you know, it's again kind of narcissistic, isn't it? Narcissistic, and, and you know, w- ignoring what's going on around us in the in a larger sense. Um, but what's the next step? I mean, what are we going to write about next? Like, I don't I know. I don't know. I'm not coffins, so, I hope, or
1: uh, just more vampires and vampires. werewolves? Vampires.
0: Well, there's that too. Yeah. I I'm into vampires. I think that's fine. I think my <laughs> next one might be a vampire <laughs> one. But there are ghosts? Are you,
1: are you into the Twilight series? This is where you come out as a Twilight. Uh, no. Are you Team Actually, Edward or Team the other guy whose name I don't know because I'm not an insane person? No. and I'm an I, adult no, I don't woman. know
0: anything about vampires. By the way, I saw a couple of vampire movies. I liked them. I'm just saying, I think it was myth. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic myth. Um, now more ghosts at the moment for some reason. I think Sue actually asked me, and I just come not think about it again, in autobiographical terms. Uh, <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, my father went to sea. He'd be away for nine months of the year. Um, he, you know, he'd go off on these long voyages, Australia and stuff like that. Um, so myself and my two brothers were raised by my mother largely. Uh, and she was a really interesting storyteller, but on a kind of a... Um, she was brilliant on people, you know, just their foibles and stuff like that. And I suppose I, re, I found out a real education about psychology and stuff. But my grandfather, uh, her father, um, he was an, an amazing storyteller and he kind of, kind of had this sort of tradition of storytelling in the family that came from the West of Ireland, you know, from uh, Roscommon and that, you know, he, he used to, I think, kind of half believe in fairies you know it was it was that kind of end of the that magic sense of the mm. world there and I mean, I mean I remember even at the time myself being quite sceptical about fairies but you know he, he was a bit of a chancellor so I don't know whether he, he really did believe them or not but you know I think he did and he was a fantastic storyteller so it's funny enough I think I've kind of gone back to that after writing you know my fiction is kind of pretty hard edge realism the drama is moving much more in that that uh, you know, there is there is realism in it. I hope it's rooted in the world. That's what I want to do anyway. But I, I want that other sense of uh, other forces at play, things we don't quite understand. Um, because you know, there's so much light shone on to everything now. Everything has to be explained. Everything has to be a diagram. Uh, I don't think that's true. That's in my experience of life, you just don't know. You just don't know what's going to happen. People are very, very surprising. Um, things leap out of them when you least expect because you've been following a particular path. So I think those kind of stories have that uh, shock quality to them, don't they? That something comes from the, um, the unknown which is always interesting from a writer's point of view. Forever Dog